Welcome to the show. This is the very first episode of the podcast, Legends of Read. My name is Joanne Sukumaran and today I'm so pleased to have our guest, Bram von Sambek. He's a very special bassoonist who has made a lot of unusual choices. Welcome to the show, Bram. Could you please introduce yourself? I'm a bassoonist, obviously. I have an orchestral career uh, that is that seems already quite far away in the Rotterdam Philharmonic. He used to play also regularly in London Symphony and Mahler Chamber Orchestra. But this mostly was between uh, 2000 and 2010. And then I started focusing a little bit more on chamber music and solo playing. And recently the teaching activities have been substantially increased uh, because of my professorship in Cologne, which was a full class I inherited immediately from Georg Klutsch, so that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, pretty, uh, pretty uh, intense uh, teaching uh, since this year. It's wonderful to hear about the appointment in Cologne. I'm also very happy to hear about your nomination of the Fagerlund and Kalevi Oho Concertos. Uh, the album has been nominated by BBC Music Magazine, the Concerto Award. Were you surprised by this news? I was a little bit surprised uh, also to find my CD <laughs> alongside the other nominations for the concertos, uh, which was a disc with the Mozart violin concertos, if I'm correct, and Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach or the Bach family on fortepiano. So yeah, it's it's kind of uh, of course it makes you think when your your CD is standing there with. Um, uh, composers like Kalevi Aho and Sebastian Fagerlund amongst composers uh, Mozart and Bach, uh, which <laughs> yeah makes you think, wow, I, how am I going to compete uh, with that? And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great honor and it, it, I am really happy about the recognition uh, in a way that, you know, the appreciation for something that I did really <laughs> practice hard for, I have to say. Yeah, definitely. I read on your blog uh, that you actually practiced so hard that your nose was bleeding. So well deserved for this nomination. Could you explain how you paired these two composers on this album? Uh, that has um, that has a lot to do with um, yeah my my desire to play Kalevi Aho's concerto already since a long time. It was initially written uh, for Benson Bugani in uh, 2005, if I'm correct. And um, I saw the score and I realized that this, this must be really fantastic to play. It is absolutely huge, it's epic. Uh, as an orchestra musician, I enjoyed always this, this greatness of the, the Mahler symphonies, for example, or Shostakovich, or the really the big symphonic works. And I thought that this work would be a fantastic kind of combination between the, this largeness, this, this really symphonic world, combined with uh, a, a real concerto. And I was really happy that that was a right um, guess, actually. 
because yeah, it 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 really has everything. It has these really large orchestral uh, passages, uh, and then there are these really more individual solo passages where the orchestra really uh, enhances the the bassoon part. In fact, uh, Caliviao has a fantastic way of instrumentating, so that you actually never feel covered by that huge orchestra that is uh, playing there. And then the combination with Fagelund's work was also a natural one, also from the uh, Beast label perspective, because yeah, the, the Beast is a is really a label that really brings forward a little bit more unusual um, stuff, and they support Kalevi Aho and Sebastian Fagelund really very well. Uh, the, the, so, so they they try in fact to record most of their works, so. Yeah, the, this idea to commission uh, Sebastian Fagelund uh, started and uh, I, I met him, I went on an epic bike ride to, to go meet him uh, and he uh, yeah, he listened to many things I did, he listened to the, the more adventurous blues uh, kind of things but he also listened to Yun monologue and from that he started with um, the solo piece, the Woodlands for bassoon solo and then he used a lot of that material uh, in the concerto later. So yeah, that was a very natural combination to Scandinavian, really great contemporary composers from different generations, sharing maybe this kind of really grandness, a uh, lot of colors in the orchestra, and a very, yeah, I always call it uh, white landscape music. I don't know if you can imagine something with that. Yes, yeah, certainly I can hear the vast amount of space in the music and uh, it's so evocative uh, of uh, Scandinavian landscape and I can imagine it being a movie soundtrack at the same time. It's really a unique album. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So some people say that you fly the flag for the alternative bassoon and you lead quite an independent career now. Uh, could you explain why you chose to leave the orchestra and focus on chamber music? Must have been quite a bold or brave choice at the time, no? Yeah, that's actually yeah. When I look back uh, at at that decision in uh, in two thousand, uh, oh, I think eleven actually, um, it was maybe quite brave at that time. I didn't think about uh, maybe uh, the financial risks and so on and that, that was that was probably a good thing because otherwise yeah I would maybe not have been brave enough to uh, leave it so maybe some naivety was uh, was good there I just went for it uh, and uh, I indeed I never got into trouble I even sometimes look back at that period where I really have to had to start working more as a chamber musician and soloist as a very relaxed period because it was a time where I could just really uh, invest in the new plans that I uh, had for the future. And at the same time, I didn't really have really too many concerts. So yeah, that that time really served a great purpose to to yeah to invest more in depth because that that was something that i sometimes uh, missed a little bit in the orchestra although i didn't leave the orchestra from any negative emotions it was definitely uh, sometimes hard for me to 
to say goodbye every week to the program that we were uh, that I was actually just getting into. So it definitely gave me a chance to work more in depth with the music I really uh, love. Talking about the music that you love, there was a Facebook video of you playing with two vocals that went viral. Let's listen to the excerpt of it. seems your broad taste in music and experimentation has led to new techniques for the bassoon. Is that right? That's right. That's how I see it a bit indeed. Uh, I, I'm very interested in yeah, any, let's say, folkloric roots of, uh, of any music actually. I, I, I have, I guess, qu a quite broad musical taste. Um, so I, I really like to to try to play also the music that I would listen to. This is a step that not many classical musicians or maybe musicians in general make. And I just enjoy it so much to, to just play or yeah, what, I'm, uh, what I'm hearing and enjoy. That means that of course you have to take the effort to, to write it down. In my case, I'm a classical musician, so I'm unfortunately quite stuck with the sheet music. Uh, but that can also be a good thing because I'm particularly interested also in in performance practice. And performance practice is a is a term, of course, hugely associated with, uh, for example, baroque and the classical playing. You could think of the non vibrato playing in uh, in baroque, um, and. That is something, in my idea, is, is much larger than that. So, for example, right now I'm working uh, on a program where I go back to all the roots of the, yeah, of, of, of the more standard bassoon pieces that I'm playing. Uh, so, for example, you could think of uh, Isang Yun's monologue. Uh, I'm connecting it to uh, yeah, a, a little fragment that I found made on a Korean flute, uh, that is the ancient court music, and yeah, I'm I'm really I'm really uh, positively surprised about the incredibly strong connections between that folkloric root and the Yun monologue, and I would like to involve some of the performance practice of that folkloric side in the Yun. I, I think there are enough indications, uh, also from the composer himself, that he still thinks along those. Uh, lines uh, in terms of sound world and I find it very interesting to broaden my technique in the sense that you uh, make the vibrato uh, the same way as that flute player does it also there seems to be a national pride in, in Korea about the incredible variety of vibrato and glissandi so this is really something uh, that fascinates me and that I enjoy writing down all the nuances uh, and then try to find a way on the bassoon to uh, yeah to achieve that as well and that leads uh, to to interesting results i find yeah well, one of the things uh, would be maybe an example would be that that we talk a lot about vibrato of course in the classical music uh, world and as bassoonists also um but because of these kind of apps like the amazing slow downer 
if you look if you listen closely to really slow versions of many wind players playing vibrato you realize that most of the vibrato is is under the tone and not so much above the tone um, even though this is sometimes being stated like oh here we are vibrate above the tone well actually if you listen closely it's still really la largely under it and that's a difference in that Korean folk music. You can hear that it's clearly above the tone, and that's actually really hard to to achieve uh, to achieve with uh, with the bassoon. You you may need special fingerings, pressing keys really slowly, like Lisandi nearly, to actually go up in pitch. Uh, that, so that that kind of things fascinate me, and I have the feeling I broaden my horizon uh, when it comes to bassoon technique that way. Yeah, likewise, uh, since a year ago, I've been listening to a lot of Indian music, uh, Sita music and uh, studying Konakol, which is the Carnatic rhythm from the south of India. And I find it so fascinating because uh, it's so sophisticated. And uh, I was also taking a lesson with a Bansuri player from the, the Indian flute and learning how he ornaments the different uh, grades of the skill. And I'm trying to find this similar language for the bassoon and I find it so so much fun and uh, I really enjoy it to look for these new techniques too myself. Yeah, absolutely. And it's fantastic to, to be busy with that kind of performance practices that are actually evolving for centuries or sometimes thousands of, of years. So there's something extremely sophisticated about it. So uh, yeah, to learn all these techniques, to be able to apply it on the bassoon, I think uh, yeah, you have to be interested in it as a bassoonist, but even for the people that are not necessarily interested to play uh, such extreme um, styles, I think it really gives a healthy perspective to what actually your normal vibrato or glissando or pitch should be. Yeah, definitely, I agree. You having some distance and perspective usually helps us to grow as a musician and become more well-rounded. And speaking of which, um, I remember last summer uh, we were doing a lesson and I was playing a Vivaldi concerto and you had some issues with uh, the edition of the uh, piece I was playing and, uh, and I, I was thinking that you were going to throw my piece out of the window <laughs> and uh, fast forward I found that you actually discovered an unknown bassoon concerto because you insisted for the original manuscripts from the Stockholm Library. Could you tell us this story? It's quite funny, right? Yeah, it was definitely by chance, yeah. <laughs> That's a funny story because I, I recorded the more well-known quintet by Eduard Dupuis uh, for Brilliant Classics on my first CD. And yeah, always I, I always like to, to, uh, to study the autograph because I yeah, I feel quite strong about not using too many uh, ideas from editors from the 60s and 70s as we very often uh, yeah, do. It, it's, it's a reinterpretation and I would like to go back to the source and figure that out all for myself, uh, even if the editors sometimes make good suggestions. So, yeah, definitely for a CD recording, I insist on having the, the basic uh, autograph material. So I called the Royal Library of Stockholm. Um, thanks to Bodo uh, Königsbeck uh, Encyclopedia, it's easy to find such sources where they uh, should be found. And um, then they actually sent me the wrong piece. Uh, so <laughs> I 
I open the envelope and I find a completely uh, different uh, piece, which turned out to be a huge bassoon concerto by uh, Edouard Dupuis as well. But it was a much larger uh, scale work. So the, the, the thing, the quintet for uh, bassoon and strings is a rather sweet and maybe relatively moderate uh, work, whereas the concerto is exploring really also all the extremes in in uh yeah in speed of playing and and definitely in in uh exploring the highest ranges uh so he he was very much, very clearly fascinated by the extremes that actually the bassoonist his friend Franz Preumeyer uh showed off uh, so it, of course Franz Preumeyer was a was a very famous bassoonist or maybe one of the first kind of really traveling uh, touring the world bassoonist uh, that could do all these uh, really virtuosic uh, things so yeah you really hear that in that concerto so that, that that's that's very interesting so we uh, we made my own edition with definitely a lot of help from uh, my friend and uh, yeah now it's yeah, I, I had the chance to play it um, the Philharmonie South Netherlands and recently with uh, the Gran Canaria Symphony Orchestra. And uh, yeah, there are strong plans to record it soon uh, as well for Bees. So yeah, that, that, that's definitely uh, one of my war horses from the more uh, yeah, uh, classical time, early romantic. Yeah, let's have a little listen to the first movement of the Dupuis Concerto in C. Here's a live excerpt with the South Netherlands Philharmonic with Bram von Sambeek. Uh, is definitely big revolutionary. He did some quite uh, naughty things, and it's it's actually nice to hear that adventure also in the music. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure there are other unknown bassoon treasures waiting for us. Definitely, yeah, yeah. I hope, uh, yeah. I also hope I'm not the only one, <laughs> and I know that I'm not the only one. But I also hope that, yeah, many many students are in that way motivated to realize. Oh well, there is actually more than just the Mozart and uh, Weber. And that will also be the reason why I put the Dupuis uh, on the same disc in the future. Yeah, speaking about this, I know you've been busy recording in the studio. What could you tell us about your next album? Anything you could share with us and uh, when it will be released? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I have a, a, f a funny uh, new band, or it's not that new because in 2011 we recorded this uh, Harlem Nocturne. It became a, a little hit in the bassoon world because it sounded a little uh, different than uh, many other things. And um, that's a band consisting of uh, uh, double bass and me as let's say a bit lead voices of the guitar or uh, uh, or, or lead singer in a rock band and then a Hammond organ and drums as the more traditional rock uh, instruments and I thought it would be nice to to call that band uh, the oscillating revenge of the background instrument because we are <laughs> musically all four 
representing an instrument that is usually accompanying or uh, is, is relatively often found in that role. Uh, so it's it's a kind of yeah uh, uh, a little bit um, yeah ch cheeky <laughs> initiative that we actually do take very serious and again go into the performance practice of heavy metal, uh, which is very interesting and uh, yeah again really a lot to learn from that. The whole idea of recording an album is absolutely uh, different to uh, whatever classical thing I have ever recorded. So it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of songs uh, by my uh, youth heroes, uh, Metallica, uh, more recently Muse, and uh, I even we even recorded a, a song by uh, a friend of mine who's a singer in a death metal band, Florian Magnus Meyer. He uh, sings in a death metal band called Alkaloid, uh, where we explore the really lowest regions of the bassoon and the double bass to copy this kind of grunt uh, that you can hear uh, in that style. And that's, that's all very interesting to bring a bit closer where, you, where many people would maybe listen to that style as something like, oh, what a noise. You realize a lot of nuance behind actually any of those styles that uh, that we are exploring so we're in fact always looking for refinement also in death metal <laughs> and that's very enjoyable refinement in music yeah yeah definitely yeah refinement yeah because there yeah there's a lot a uh, lot of things that you have to consider when it's when it's uh, about sound also timing in actually generally in um, in the more heavy metal style uh, songs that we recorded you feel extremely confronted with the huge margin that we have uh, gotten used to as classical musicians uh, you in in the in the classical repertoire we are often quite spoiled i would say in timing a little early a little late can all be quite fine and serving musically expressive uh, purposes but in that style you don't get away with that it, ha it just has to be really tight and if you do something you you really have to know uh, very well what you're doing uh, so the rubato feeling is very different so timing wise you can learn a lot there uh, and i did and those are techniques that you sometimes can also apply to um, yeah, maybe a quick movement of a Vivaldi bassoon concerto has much more benefit from actually playing it sometimes really, really straight in tempo than looking for uh, really big timing variations. Of course, this is a very general remark, but the, maybe you can imagine something with a really some of those really outrageously quick and <laughs> yeah, uh, nearly rock music-like. Uh, Vivaldi uh, movements that you that we all know. That's fascinating. Having some distance and experimenting can lead to some big breakthroughs in one's playing. Yeah, that's how I how I look at it. Yeah, so that's the, my angle is very often looking from the extended technique. You know, trying something in the in the extreme will lead also to an insight uh, in in the basic technique uh, that. 
I definitely also not deserted, just to be clear. <laughs> I, did, I didn't drift off completely um, in that sense. It, it's, I really see the strong connections between those extremes and the more moderate thing, the, the thing that we are used to. For me, the way is just always to, to look for the borders of my, my own comfort zone, to, to look for new challenges and new, uh, new perspectives. Oh, definitely really very interesting. Uh, but this is the part where we get to know Brahm a bit better. Could you tell us a fun fact about yourself, something that most people don't know about? If you could have a superpower, what would it be? A super a superpower? Ah, I didn't discover that superpower yet. I, I hope to discover it uh, soon. But yeah, I think the, the maybe the secret that will be known to the world soon is that I'm... Um, experimenting more and more with a, a multi-effect pedal which I find quite a piece of uh, magic and uh, is a kind of uh, sup ex external superpower uh, that I'm right now really uh, yeah, enjoying a lot and, and finding a connection with that playful uh, element that I was just uh, d describing. But yeah, that's that's. Uh, <laughs> there are, yeah, yeah, fun facts about me. Maybe outside of of the bassoon, uh, I'm sometimes thinking I'm such a uh, profession uh, idiot that uh, aside from that, there's uh, <laughs> there's of course also a whole uh, a whole life, but that limits itself to to maybe, yes. Yeah, uh, feeling really a connection to sports uh, that for me the bassoon and and uh, different ways of just moving are also very connected i always need to to move uh, also to maintain that focus yeah i saw this video of you running on the beach somewhere do you have time for some hobbies uh, what do you enjoy doing uh, outside of the bassoon it's uh, it's quite uh, uh, limited uh, to to listening to a lot of different styles of music and yeah reading. I really enjoy uh, reading a lot. So and that also again can be anything, but I'm most fond of yeah reading uh, reading novels. Uh, really something that has a a nice uh, storyline. Um, but when I have to tell my own story during the concert, it can be also enjoyable for me to, to just keep checking all kinds of dry facts, more like an encyclopedia. Uh, say, it gives me the same, same pleasure to really, to really read. I see. So now I'm curious, uh, what is uh, sitting on your bookshelf or what was the last book you have read? I'm currently my focus is not that great that I um, uh, that I just read one book because I'm right now I'm I'm reading uh, many different books. One is uh, about uh, the actually trees <laughs> uh, that describe it. It actually won a, a German prize um, uh, because it it describes really the the way trees are actually much more alive and and or. Uh, organic uh, beings than we uh, know but I just started that book it's uh, I'm very curious where that goes but it's fascinating how they are networking amongst each other those trees and uh, I'm reading also a book on uh, the different uh, work routines of uh, a lot of different artists um, this is a Dutch edition that I'm reading but I think there's an American edition uh, 
of which I don't know the editor. But uh, it's, it's, it's a very nice book to, to get some insight in how actually extreme very often the, the work routines of different famous artists and writers uh, were. So those, uh, those are actually not uh, so much uh, stories, but uh, yeah, the latest really uh, yeah, story for me to read uh, was actually rereading um, Murakami 1Q84 because I think that's a really nice uh, thriller-like novel. Very nice. I'm quite the bookworm myself. Uh, are there some causes you feel strongly about? There was something about you saving the earth and not flying for 100 days. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I tried, uh, I tried hard. Unfortunately, then I, uh, I have to take the plane again to America. Uh, but I, I managed to not fly for 14 months uh, in, a, in a funny attempt to save the planet that way. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that flying has just a, really a lot of impact. So it creates a tension between uh, yeah, in, uh, maintaining an international career and uh, feeling a bit bad to uh, what you're doing uh, that way. Um, so yeah I, I i really enjoyed that also you know actually traveling by trains it, i find way more satisfying than traveling by uh, plane so also when i will play the concert in uh, new york with the german music society of lincoln center after that uh, i'll go by train to indiana which is quite a trip because it's, uh, i think if i'm not mistaken it's about 24 hours before i uh, reach there but I'm immensely looking forward to, to that trip, in fact, because it's definitely a place where I can also work uh, on uh, all the emails I'm behind and uh, all the other things that are not playing. Interesting. I have some surprise questions for you. I've invited some fans to submit questions for the podcast. Here's a question from a young bassoonist based in New York. His name is Ernesto Balarezzo. He says, hi, Brown, what kind of cane do you prefer? Uh, what is or are your favorite shapers? Also, have you tried the Let Singer Bassoons or the new Puckner? Oh, yeah. So basically my, my whole uh, setup uh, currently. Yeah. Um, well, I have, I have definitely worked the most with uh, Media Cane. Um, I should add that the result with my own machines is uh, slightly different than to what I sometimes see students uh, use um, of prefabricated uh, material by Media. So that's, that's definitely a bit um, has a different result. Then with the shaper, um, I uh, developed one uh, shaper together with Chris van Os that has been produced by Ton Arts. And uh, so that's that's something that is a bit uh, yeah it's, it's not really on the commercial market in fact, uh, but uh, it's a quite straight model. It's somewhere in between one A and and two Rieger, um, and uh, yeah, it, it, the shape is based on a relatively short blade and a narrow uh, collar. This narrow collar for me enables me to be sharp enough in the tenor register which is usually a bit flat on the older heckles like mine and um, this the 
so uh, maybe I said it wrong actually. I, I said uh, uh, I, sh it's, I should say it's a shorter blade and a relatively wider collar. Uh, so the wider collar enables me to be flat enough in the low register and the shortness enables me to be sharp enough in the tenor register. Sorry for mixing that up. Um, and with the bassoon, uh, it's, yeah, I, I'm in such a special situation in that sense because I, I'm quite in love still with my uh, bassoon that I had the honor to buy from Sergio Azzolini. And it was previously owned by Klaus Tunemann. It's uh, the Heckel 11,174. And it has this sound that I really enjoy. Uh, and actually uh, a lot of intonation problems for free uh, coming with that as well. That's, way, uh, that's maybe why my reads are also made in a slightly different way than, the, than, than we see around uh, a lot. Yeah. Oh, great to know about your setup. Here's another question from Jung Ho Chang from Busan Philharmonic. Uh, Jung Ho would like to know how is your schedule looking like for the rest of the year? Are there any chances you will return to Asia and tour with the Kalevi Oho Concerto? Yeah, there are there are definitely uh, some plans with the the, the to uh, actually record um, a big concerto uh, like like that is usually uh, a project that takes years. Right now, we're focusing on uh, a double concerto uh, that is uh, written by Caliviao as well. Uh, so after the solo concerto, he uh, decided to to write that because I thought it would be a really nice idea to go visit my fr uh, friends all around the world, the principal bassoonists in, uh, in orchestras, and to exchange again a little bit more than what I'm used to. Now, when you're standing as a soloist in front of the orchestra, uh you can have of course the interaction with the with the principals but it it's really nice way to get even a bit closer and to really cooperate so there uh, the, the the nearest plans now for any aho concerto uh, uh will happen uh, with um, with the Galicia symphony orchestra and uh, Warsaw Philharmonic, uh, that's, that's in uh, January 2019. And uh, so there, there is, yeah, there are many, many different uh, plans. I will record uh, Mozart, Weber and uh, Dupuy, probably also in January 2019. Um, I will play with the Concertgebouw Chamber Orchestra, a, a program that is quite uh, uh, big also for the bassoon because it's this uh, Nocio, uh, this the, with the Precoletti uh, themes. It's quite a well-known standard piece, of course, amongst uh, bassoonists, but it's not often played with the original uh, string orchestra. So that one goes together with the Weber uh, Concerto as well. Um, so yeah, there are there are some really nice plans uh, coming up uh, from now. Yeah. Wow, that sounds like a very busy year ahead for you. It is a very busy year since I also combined uh, the teaching positions in uh, the Netherlands and Germany uh, right now. So sometimes I definitely feel like I'm really on the maximum of holding, uh, yeah, all the projects uh, going on right now. 
so uh, yeah, it's quite a, it's quite a challenge uh, sometimes, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's going well. Yeah, thank you so much for your time today. We've come to the end of the interview. I wish you a very productive time in the US and uh, all the best. I cross my fingers for the BBC Music Magazine Award and uh, safe travels, Rob. Bye. Yeah, thank you very much. Pleasure to, uh, to do this.